Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and I'm dancing with Thomas Mullaney about his new book, The Chinese Typewriter, A History. Thomas S. Mullaney is Associate Professor of History at Stanford University and the author of Come to Terms with the Nation, Ethnic Classification in Modern China. Tom Mullaney, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks for having me. Now, your book begins during the opening ceremonies of the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing. What happened then that is important for the story you tell in The Chinese Typewriter? Well, uh, the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympics is, uh, is, a, is, a, is actually a, a really curious moment in history if you know uh, what to look for. So a lot of people spend uh, pay attention to the Olympics uh, because of the you know massive buildup in in the run up to the Olympics by by the Chinese state and of course you know this was supposed to be China's coming of age story in the 21st century and uh, but in my way of uh, reading it I guess there's something far more interesting which was the parade of nations this is the event where at the beginning or the first day of uh, uh, of the Olympics, where the the different national teams have their national flags and the name of their country, and then they proceed around the grounds of the main stadium. In this case, the the famous Bird's Nest. And what's so curious about this is that there's actually a rule or a regulation that determines how the teams are supposed to file in order, uh, and it dates back almost a century. And uh, the rule basically summarized says that. The national teams uh, should line up in alphabetical order uh, in accordance with the alphabet as it functions in the host country's language. So if it's in France, uh, then it should be alphabetical order according to how the French use the Latin alphabet. Or if it's in Russia, it should be in accordance with the Cyrillic alphabet and so forth and so on. So on face at the face of it, it sounds really neutral and and universal and very uh, catholic. It doesn't place any restrictions on it. Well, as it turns out, 2008 is the first time in history, in the history of the Olympic Games, that the Olympic Games were held in a country whose writing system, whose language does not have an alphabet at all. And so if I'm the Olympic organizers, you know, the Beijing Olympic organizers, I've got to ask myself the question, okay, how are we going to organize the, uh, the opening ceremonies? And what they end up doing is, 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 is basically a kind, of, uh, a kind of challenge or a kind of affront to the global viewing audience and saying, okay, well, we don't have an alphabet, so we're going to organize it according to the way that Chinese characters have historically been organized. And we don't really care if you understand how this works. Um, and as it turns out, the commentators and television broadcasters and the internet at large was just entirely confused and they just thought it was chaos. But there was actually order to the, the parade of nations that people are just not familiar with. So the Chinese had organized their language before the Olympics, before even the invention of the typewriter. But it really was that question of typewriting as a statement of modernity, which I got from your book, really began to make Westerners think more about, well, how is Chinese organized? And in fact, can it be modernized to a degree where one can then make a typewriter out of it? Uh, we're going to talk more about that as we go on. But this whole idea of a Chinese typewriter, really starting around the beginning of the development of the typewriter, like the mid-19th to late-19th century, more than anything else, was kind of a trope for amusement in the West. 
But it's a trope that ended up having a lot longer lifespan than people would have thought about it. Could you talk about the trope and really was there anything more to it than a visual joke? So the the trope in question is uh, are these cartoons? Uh, first, they're cartoons, and they they start to appear right around the year 1900, almost almost on the dot. And uh, the the trope is that a Chinese typewriter uh, is portrayed as this massive uh, building sized contraption in which there are thousands and thousands of keys, and in which the so called typist is is running up and down uh, this machine that's much bigger than he is, and I guess pr- jumping on the keys or pressing them by hand. Um, and and the, the joke of this, when I first saw this cartoon, which was early on in the, in the research process, I thought, okay, this is an open and shut case of the well, the era's really rabid um, anti-Chinese racism, or just a a kind of denigration, uh, a conscious denigration of the Chinese writing system. And it is that, but it's also something much more that only started to reveal itself as the research went on. And basically, in a nutshell, those cartoons say as much about the cartoonists as they as they attempt to uh, say about the Chinese language. And the, And the simple point is, is that uh, the Western typewriter, uh, typewriters in the West, if you go back to the origins of Western typewriting in the post-American uh, Civil War era, 1870s and 80s and 90s, there are many different types of typewriters for the, al- for, for the English alphabet or for the English language. There are typewriters with no keyboards. Um, there are typewriters that people try to manage with one hand. There are typewriters in which both the capitals and lowercase are all on one uh, larger size keyboard. And then there's the, the, there were typewriters that we're familiar with of the single keyboard and the shift key. Well, this initial diversity of, of ideas of the typewriter uh, began to thin out and then basically turn into this kind of monoculture right around the turn of the century. It was around the turn of the century that people began to equate typewriting in general with only one of that one of those sort of beasts that used to walk the earth of the typewriting world that is the remington style single shift keyboard they we almost forgot the diversity of our own origins when it comes to typewriting now this didn't have a huge implication let's say for the english language but it had an immense implication for engineers and for you know in the popular kind of memes and popular tropes when trying to imagine what a typewriter would look like for other languages. So if a typewriter is, by definition, a machine that has a single keyboard uh, with a shift key where there is one key per you know, unit of language, if that is the only definition of what a typewriter can and should be, well then, yes, by definition, a Chinese typewriter would be the size of a building. Um, but if you go back to the origins of typewriting and remember that there's absolutely no need for a typewriter to look a specific way uh, as long as it achieves certain things, um, then, in fact, there are many different ways in which one could solve the Chinese typewriter puzzle. And so, in essence, uh, while the West is making fun of uh, Chinese uh, and failing to break into the Chinese market because, in essence, they're trying to build a Remington for Chinese, which you can't do – it, it it falls upon the, the shoulders of some other thinkers, engineers, entrepreneurs to say, wait a minute, we need to rethink from scratch what a typewriter can be 
in order to solve the Chinese typewriter puzzle. We can't accept the idea that this is the only kind of typewriter that can exist. So that's what the cart. When I read the cartoons after a while, I realized, ah, this is actually almost a diagnosis or a symptom of of a a a, a closing of the a closing of the techno the technological imagination of the West around this point when it came to this kind of uh, this kind of information technology of the typewriter. So maybe thinking in terms of evolutionary theory that that uh, the shift key typewriter that we're used to, I say, at Remington or Olivetti. This fitness landscape is pretty much set for those languages in which you have an alphabet, which you can then strike characters, and over time you can create words. But when you try to move that particular animal to Chinese, the fitness landscape is just gone. It's it's not fit for purpose in that in that environment. And but you have people that only see that as a particular way to go forward. And so the whole question about the Chinese typewriter is: Okay, well, what is the animal we're going to build for this particular fitness landscape? Is that fair to say? That's that's absolutely correct, and that's exactly what uh, many different Chinese engineers and uh, are saying in the teens, nineteen teens and nineteen twenties. Is I mean, one of the quotes in the book is something to the effect of, you know, typewriter language was not writing systems. Language was not made for the typewriter. Typewriters should be made for language. And so, if an engineer sort of throws up their hands and says, "Well, this can't be built," then in essence, that person's not much of an engineer. Um, that we. An engineer, a good one, by definition, needs to be willing to rethink the fundaments of, uh, or you know, reimagine the assumptions that they hold in order to solve a particular problem. Um, and you know, for a lot of reasons, for a lot of reasons, not, it's not just imagination. Obviously, by this point, there are huge factories that are spitting out Remington machines and Underwood machines, and it you know it, it's 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 easier said than done to simply blow up that blueprint and start over um and then you know try to what but what that really means is you'd have to, Remington would have had to be willing to blow up its factory and rebuild it from scratch in order to 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 have a starting point that could encompass both chinese and english as well as each other and for you know for understandable reasons Remington is saying hey we've got uh, we've got Hebrew, we've got Arabic, we've got Cyrillic, we've got Javanese. We, um, and so, no, yes, yes, we are excluding a quarter of humanity, which is no, no small thing. I mean, the Chinese writing system uh, in terms of usage is just, uh, you know, it's one of the world languages. Yes, we are excluding this language that we would desperately love to break into the market of. But at the same time, you know, our machines are selling like hotcakes for a, a whole other set of scripts. And um, so that's the space into which figures like uh, Qi Xuan and Zhou Houkun and Xu Zhandong are entering into. They're saying, all right, well, we've got to, A, we have to reimagine the Chinese writing system. We have to submit it to a kind of ferocious kind of analysis and criticism and to reimagine what characters are and what we can do with them. But at the same time, we also have to subject the typewriter form to the same kind of, you know, to the acid bath of reason in order to break it down and reimagine it. So that's why I kind of make the point in the book that these these engineers that that are going about solving the Chinese typewriter puzzle are not just language reformers, they're also typewriter reformers at the you know, at the same time. 
So what were some of the early attempts to break the Chinese puzzle? Like in the sense, in the book, you really talk about three different schools that developed, but it seemed that the first one was, as you referred to, the common usage school. Uh, I thought when I was reading about it, I thought about, well, today I know that there are dictionaries. If you're trying to learn a foreign language, you can get frequency dictionaries that you know tell you well, which words appear the most. So if you're trying to figure out what is, say, the thousand most common words I might see in Spanish, that is going to take maybe 70% of the language. I'm assuming that that was what they started to work with in Chinese. We know what are the most common ideograms, pictographs you're going to see, and then how do we develop a typewriter around this? Is that accurate, and what were some of the experiments in it? Definitely. So, the, you know, there, there, there are three main approaches and only one of them becomes um, the basis for mass manufactured machines. So the one that wins the day, so to speak, uh, in the in the mechanical earring era of Chinese typewriting is the common usage model. And then there are these uh, there are these two uh, sort of let's call them minority reports. They, they are technically being proposed, but they're not you know winning out. And one of them is is I call it uh, combinatorialism, or you could also call it divisible type. And then this other one, this other system tries to reimagine Chinese um, at, through, a, through an alternate writing system and then place that alternate writing system on a machine. But for common usage uh, to start out with, uh, you have it exactly right. So, you know, by this point, by the late 1800s, it is very well known. It has been well known for centuries uh, that not every Chinese character is as frequent as every other Chinese character, just like, uh, in, you know, just like you said, that w across every language, there are certain words which are orders of magnitude more frequent than others. And so, in essence, the, the common usage approach to Chinese typewriting turns the puzzle of the Chinese typewriter into a kind of uh, proto-digital humanities, proto-text analysis kind of question of okay, we need to do a rigorous statistical analysis of larger and larger and larger bodies of Chinese uh, printed matter, whether they're newspapers or novels or, or, or textbooks or whatever. We literally have to count one by one by one every single time every single character shows up. And of course, this is not the era of optical character recognition and, and things like that. This is just people sitting down with with a notebook and then whatever text and literally doing tallies of every single character that they look at. And so right around um right around the, the I guess the midpoint of the 19th century this also this insight the idea that some characters are more frequent than others gets picked up uh by uh, by foreign printers and translators and people trying to build Chinese language learning uh, you know, pedagogies. And one of the first is a, is a, is a gentleman named George Staunton, who in the course of translating the legal code, the Chinese legal code of the Qing dynasty, uh, comes to the realization while he's doing his translation work that the entire Qing legal code in all its complexity and length can actually, is actually made up of only a set of, I forget the number now, a little over 2,000 to 3,000, let's say, characters. I might have that number wrong from memory. But that the entire thing is actually made up of a, of a fairly limited number of characters. And this start this basically triggers a kind of proto-digital humanities rush in the Western world, and people start, start subjecting the, the classics, uh, the Confucian classics, uh, the Dao De, <coughs> the Dao De Jing, uh, various works of, from the Chinese canon, to this kind of statistical analysis 
and one discovers that oh the all of the works of confucius is just a few th- is made up of a few thousand characters all of the works of x y or z can be made up of a few thousand characters and this has huge implications for as you in in the example you gave of language learning and that's what that's what you know many of their concerns were about if i'm going to sit down and try to learn the chinese language which one, which characters should i start with which are second which are third so this this process this set of you know this 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 thought process which had been around in china for centuries which starts to be picked up by the western world really in the 1800s by the time the chinese by the time typewriters come into existence and people are worried about how do we build one of these things uh, it was a ready and available strategy. And so in essence, the compromise becomes, okay, how do we fit all of the Chinese characters onto a machine? The answer is we don't. The answer is we make a compromise and we settle upon those uh, 3,000 to 5,000 characters early on and then eventually 2,500 characters that constitute the most commonly used in the entire language. And then the only the price that we'll pay for building a machine of this sort is that no Chinese typewriter ever will encompass the entirety of the language. And so we're going to build in one more feature for this type of typewriter that doesn't exist for any other typewriter that certainly I know of anywhere in the rest of the world except for Japan, actually. Um, but any any alphabetic system. And that is we are going to allow it to be customizable. We're going to allow the typist to remove characters, add characters, so that if they work in a law firm or a police station or a, you know, a government bureau, they can make sure that characters they need on a daily basis, their common characters that might be uncommon to others, can be readily at hand. And so for the first time, we have a typewriter that can, is de- by definition, by, by, by design, is customizable and changeable by the user. Imagine if you could change the letters on your keyboard. Uh, we, you know, there's no need to in the Western in the Western alphabet system. Um, but this this need and this this feature of the typewriter emerges in in Chinese typewriting for that reason. You know, there's so many areas that I would never thought about the development of the Chinese typewriter. Whether we're talking about the uh, the size of the typewriter or actually when it gets into later on say the 30s and 40s the degree to which the uh, Japanese industrial market actually kind of took over the Chinese typewriting market but I was wanting to talk about and this one blew me away how Morse code ended up being kind of important to the development of Chinese typewriters and how Chinese telegraph artists ended up coming up I guess how they adapted Morse code for their own usage I thought it was fascinating I'm glad that you brought that up because, uh, you know, the book is called The Chinese Typewriter, but there's actually a fairly extensive foray into Chinese telegraphy and Chinese Morse code. And I try to make the point that uh, it's actually the era of telegraphy in the uh, electric telegraphy in in the midpoint of the 19th century, where the puzzle of modern Chinese information technology is really born. Um... By which I mean the the moment when Chinese writing becomes a so-called problem in the story of information technology. Because before this, <laughs> Chinese is not a problem at all. It's it's you know it's 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 uh, it's incredibly well suited for a variety of technologies. Woodblock print is an incredibly cost efficient and effective kind of you know process. The cost of Chinese books is incredibly low, and you know so this idea that Chinese has always been a problem is is simply bogus. But when does when does Chinese become a puzzle or a, or a so-called problem in the history of modern information technology is really with 
uh, telegraphy and Morse code. Because Samuel Morse and Alfred Vail, when they're designing uh, the symbolic system, the semiotic structure of telegraphy, they're, of course, like any engineer and any inventor in their position, thinking of things close at hand, the English language, the Latin alphabet. So, so Morse code is perfectly suited to handle the Latin alphabet specifically as it functions in the English language. You know, their most code, the letter code units are uh, from one to four code units long. They're made up of only one of two kinds of, 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 of units, a dot or a dash. And what that gets you is just enough space for the English, uh, the English uh, alphabet language. And in fact, even the French and certainly and the, and the Germans and the Russians, uh, a little bit less the Russians, had to worry about, okay, how do we fit our writing system, our language into this? They had to petition at the International Telegraphic Union, this governing body that oversaw the emerging industry of telegraphy, saying, hey, you know, what about the accented E or the or the sedia or what, you know. So it was a very, very conservative uh, kind of infrastructural system that, that was governing the code of telegraphy. Well, now, you know, as, as the telegraph is spreading to the middle, moder- what we now think of as the modern Middle East and South Asia in the 1850s and 60s, what, what do we do? What does Morse do? Does it stretch to, to, to encompass all of these? Does it not? It, it really was a challenge. Well, then we get to 1871, um, and 1870-71, when the telegraph, the international web of telegraphy, is starting to reach China. And so, so uh, kind of like the story of the opening ceremony of the Olympics, uh, suddenly this code, Morse code, doesn't seem so universal anymore, uh, because it's built to work with letters and syllables. Well, how do you build Morse code when you don't have letters and syllables? Um, and so in essence, a, uh, after, a, a sort of thought experiment by some, some kind of eccentric actors in the story who really did imagine what it would be like to, to deconstruct the entirety of Morse code of telegraphy itself and rebuild it so that a, a new kind of telegraphic system could be able to handle with equal aplomb either Chinese or English. But Long story short, this kind of radical reimagination of telegraphy did not take place. And instead, two foreigners, uh, a Danish mathematician and a, and a, and a French harbormaster in Shanghai, created what was the first telegraph code for Chinese that would be used in the international system. And it was, uh, in essence, a major disadvantage to the Chinese writing system. It took the 10,000 most common Chinese characters, and it simply organized them basically in the standard dictionary order of the day, uh, this, this system called radical stroke organization that was, you know, commonly known. It took 10,000 of them. The first of the characters, it assigned the number 0001, and then the last space was 9999. And, uh, and, and so what you'd have to do is you'd have to have a code book with these uh, Chinese characters and number combinations. And if you wanted to send a, a Chinese message, you would have to translate it not once uh, into Morse code, but twice. You'd first have to translate the Chinese characters into these four-digit numbers and then use Morse code to translate those numbers into dots and dashes. So suddenly Chinese became the only um, – the only, perhaps the only language on earth, certainly the only major language on earth 
that had two rather than one form of translation in order to take part in Chinese telegraphy in, in, in international telegraphy. Um, and so, it, you know, this was to me a really telling moment in the global history of information technology is that because a technology was invented where it was invented with, you know, a certain set of assumptions about language in mind, it, ha- it, w- it worked just fine for, for English. You know, it had to stretch for French, but it worked, f- worked great. But then once it got to a writing system that the inventors simply had not contemplated at all in its development, suddenly we have a built-in embedded inequality in the information infrastructure that uh, that actually ends up getting blamed on Chinese itself, on the language itself. Um, so this is kind of, for me, the, the beginning, the starting point of where we can start to speak of embedded inequalities in the modern information infrastructure. And then the typewriter becomes, in essence, the second major exemplar of that inequality. Uh, but then word processing and computing and optical character recognition all the way up to uh, the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympics with the, the parade of nations, which is supposedly universal because it's, uh, you know, it's based on the alphabetical order of the host country. So there's a uh, one after the next, after the next is Chinese keeps confronting this, uh, fake universalism of modern information and engineers from all over the world keep having to try to solve and reconcile and overcome this, this fake universalism. Um, and that's kind of what this this book is really all about. You know, and there's so much we're going to have to admit, admit from our conversation just because of the, there's so much in the book that you could talk about going all the way up yeah. to its relationship to the next. Because this is part one of, of uh, two books looking at Chinese information technology. And I think you kind of give a hint of where the next book may be going. Um, Tom Laney, the author of The Chinese Typewriter, A History. Thank you so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you for having me. It was, it was really fun to speak with you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2017. The MIT Press. All rights reserved.